Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? What do they have to teach us about any of these things in the time of pandemic and who we are meant to be to each other? My name is Seth Whispelway, and I am a pastor in the United Church of Christ. I use he and him pronouns. I'm speaking with you all from Tucson, Arizona, which is located on the occupied territory of the Tohono O'odham Nation and its people who have stewarded this land for generations. We do well to acknowledge these things at a very minimum in hope and prayer that our ideas and understandings of possession, property, and history unclench towards a radical repentance that ultimately leads to a radical re-understanding, use, and reclamation of these spaces we call church, home, and more, as the living God expects and requires. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Come on. Earth to Jesus. Have you seen the news? There's nothing but trouble. Trouble is in the air we breathe. No, literally. As our lectionary journey continues through the Easter season, our journey continues through the anxiety, dread, frustration, and struggle for resilience in our pandemic reality. Death, or the specter of death, is all around. Such a hard thing to grasp, whether we are on the front lines of responding to COVID-19, or one of the millions doing our life-giving part by biding time and simply trying to survive a cacophony of needs. And this week, We are brought by the authors of the Gospel of John in our Easter season to what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. A long discourse and last testament, if you will, from Jesus to those who would be his followers of how to embody the way he walked when he is no longer physically present. You know the one probably, where Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, and how no one gets to God except through him. Per usual, the disciples sort of get it. Let's connect for a few on today's podcast to ask their questions and see if we get it. And before this episode is over, we'll remind ourselves that Jesus does get it. He gets what we're going through. He went through it. Inviting in God's purposes laid claim on him and lays claim on us. It's why he spends this time before his own pending, dreadful death, sharing how to find that resilience that will carry the way, truth, and life of love forward. That resilience we can and do have inside us. 
the resilience to dismantle the systems of white supremacy that even and especially now are wreaking havoc on lives already in the crosshairs of our empire's racist structures, exposed even further by this crisis. The truth is, as much as each of us is struggling to maintain balance in one way or another, we will find that we will be that much more fortified to do so when we locate ourselves in the work of naming who we are interrelationally with our fellow human beings in ways that bring collective liberation from the death-dealing intersections of COVID-19 and white supremacy. Who are we meant to be to each other? That starts with locating yourself. We are called to love neighbors as ourselves, which means loving and knowing ourselves. We all struggle with that in some way. I certainly do. When we get stuck, how can we get unstuck? How can we break free from the lie that we are unlovable? How can we accept that who we are is enough? When we learn about systems of white supremacy that lie to us, it's also so easy to get stuck when we've lived or been told to live a lie for so long. White guilt is the stuck place. Living the truth that we belong to each other, unshackled from the toxic lies of whiteness, is costly in this death-dealing system, but oh, so liberating. How can we better embody who we are called to be? who I am. I want to talk a bit about embodying I am today. What living through this pandemic reveals to us will be made known by diving deep into Jesus's discourse and the long-standing traditions of prophets and poets he relies on. It will mean not feeling forced by any should, but it will also mean admitting that we're not casually invited into this work either. We are sent I am sent by the way, the truth, and the life. How to name, claim, and live into I am, you are, we are. It helps to understand first that when Jesus says in John 14, 2, that in God's house there are many dwelling places, he does not reference a believer's future place in heaven, but is speaking of dwell as a metaphor for relationship with God and Jesus. Jesus' departure will enable believers to share in that relationship. That's us. And what about Jesus being the way, truth, and life through which no one can come to God except through him? This verse has been misappropriated ad nauseum to wrongly teach that special favor and belovedness in God's eyes is a Jesus or bust proposition. As biblical scholar Gail O'Day puts it, what John intends as particularism, many contemporary Christians wrongly interpret as exclusiveness. John 14.6 celebrates how Jesus reveals God for those in this particular faith community and is not a statement about the relative worth of the world's religions. John is concerned with helping Christians recognize and name their God and the distinctiveness of their identity as a people of faith. The central theological conviction of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the tangible presence of God in the world." End quote. 
So when Thomas and Philip say they don't know the way because they don't know where Jesus is going, it's also a misunderstanding of way as a geographic term. Rather, when Jesus responds, I am the way, dot, 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 he's showing that way refers to the revelatory work of Jesus, as O'Day puts it. So what does it mean to name our God and understand the revelatory way of Jesus? In the end, it means naming ourselves. To explain, permit me a bit of a scriptural re rewind. God is barely mentioned in the book of Exodus and is not recorded speaking until Moses encounters that famous spontaneously combustible shrub. It's worth noting that God chooses to speak only once Moses, of his own volition, turns aside to take in the bizarre sight. Once Moses realizes he's not going crazy, that the voice of the Lord is emanating from the bush, or so he chooses to believe, God gets right down to business. God's first order of business after the red-hot introduction is something Moses wouldn't make up on his own. God jumps right in with making her urgent concern known. I have profound sorrow and empathy for those beaten down under the yoke of oppression. God's plan for dealing with this urgent concern is liberation from grotesque dehumanizing injustice and the sharing of nourishing bounty for the oppressed once they are free. Then comes the really big news for Moses. So come, I will send you. Send. God is commissioning Moses. There is a specific life ahead of us when one encounters and acknowledges the living God. God does not say, I am forcing you. It's God. She could do it, or so our popular imagination would lead us to believe, with a swift Holy Spirit kick to the rear or some invasion of the body snatchers type scenario. Neither does God say, I'm inviting you, because that would be an easy out. Moses could just as easily reply, yeah, sorry, I have a thing Friday. Ascending is somewhere in between forced and invited. Now that Moses has encountered the core concerns and passions of the heart of God, he can choose to accept the goodness-inducing purposes of God as his own. With that choice comes a freedom to wrestle, and Moses uses every ounce of that freedom, throwing each excuse he can think of back at God. No excuse ends up being good enough to dissuade God's call, nor robust enough to drive Moses away. The back and forth they have is the clarifying process that opens up just what it means to be sent to pursue and embody good, until there is no me and you, but rather one I am. What it means to be sent to pursue and embody God. God assures Moses he will not be alone, and will prove it through a collective worship of God's goodness on the very mountain they are standing on when the liberation is accomplished. When Moses asks God, well, if I come say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? I like to imagine Moses' tone of voice here as a plaintive six-year-old who doesn't want to try something they know they're totally going to do at this point, but don't really want to yet. God said to Moses, I am what I am. 
Now, this is fodder for a classic Abbott and Costello routine. Who sent you? I am what I am sent me. You sent yourself? No, the I am who I am sent me to bring rescue. Exactly, you're here because of who you are. No! Well, wait a minute. Exactly. Humor aside, no matter how one translates the Tetragrammaton, saying it as God gives it to Moses results in speaking of oneself concurrently. One could say God is punking Moses, but that would only hold true if the living God was a puppet master kind of deity in the ancient Greek or Roman tradition. No, God's intent is purposeful and good and humorous. For those who encounter and embrace the living God, the concerns and goodness of God are grafted onto the person who chooses to embrace the symbiotic, generative pursuit of making goodness real in the groaning and birthing of life, hope, work, and death on earth. The name becomes our own, and vice versa. We do not become God in some egotistical, patriarchal, dictatorial, superego way. No, we become the hands and feet of God's purposes and concerns in ways that open our eyes and hearts continually to the struggle and promise that all will be woven together in a fabric of balance, peace, and justice. Shalom. As one who chooses to be sent and symbiotically grafted to the pursuit of good godness or godly goodness, Moses is given three tasks in his commission. Speak up and advocate for the oppressed, be a liberator of the oppressed, and congregate and worship the goodness of the living God who is on the side of loving all, and especially the oppressed. And the story, inspiration, and commission do not end in Exodus. The same prophetic call for goodness is woven throughout Hebrew scripture and into the Christian Testament and through history. The servant song of Isaiah 61 is one of the most prominent examples from the prophets of this ongoing inbreaking of God in sending people to work for and minister goodness. We see the spirit breath, we see the name of God, and we see the commission and its attendant tasks for a life of godly goodness making. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. God has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. What's powerful about this encounter and sending from the living God is that it builds on the tradition and story of who God is for goodness and God's people. This third Isaiah has also chosen to turn aside. Hear the call of what God's goodness means for making people and creation whole and decides to carry the mantle of God's passions and concerns in the tradition of his prophetic forebears. To put it more simply, if God is real, then an encounter and mission in the ways of God is a very big deal and claim. The proof of encounter and relationship isn't whatever someone wants to say it is. 
claiming divine anointing and sending for God's purposes means manifesting a kingdom, aliveness and transformational love that subverts normative power constructs and coming alongside those oppressed and abused by them. We become messengers and manifestations of God's goodness on earth when we agree to hear and follow what Moses was sent to do and when we live out the commission Isaiah received. And the story does not end there, though. For those of us curious about Jesus, compelled by Jesus, or claiming a going steady relationship with Jesus, descending to live out, nourish, and receive the hallmarks of God's goodness become our breathing embodiment of who we are as people hitched to the label Christian or Christianity. We need look no further, though we can find many places in the Gospels, than when Jesus kicks off his public ministry as told by Luke. When given the Isaiah scroll to read on his regular sabbatical visit to the synagogue, Jesus intentionally finds the aforementioned servant song, reads it out loud, and drops the big one. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone in earshot is understandably agog because Jesus is claiming that he, in his person, embodies God's sending of goodness. Personally, relationally, and systemically, the way that Jesus walks is liberation from oppression. Walk in this way, follow me, he says, and liberation will be known to you too. From reliance on wealth and worldly power, from the yoke of literal oppressors, from cruelty and malice and destructive ways of living. living. Jesus says, liberation through me brings peace, and people will know you are liberated by how you bring this mission to others in mind, spirit, and body. In other words, all those who claim an encounter, let alone a relationship with the living God, are inevitably commissioned likewise into a living, breathing, liberating process. Those believing there is a God and claim the whole goodness of God is encountered in the person, practice, death, and resurrection of Jesus are sent as hands and feet of Jesus to do as God called Moses, Isaiah, and everyone in between, and how Jesus then calls us. The rest of Jesus' recorded ministry across all four Gospels is rife with parables, examples, and exhortations to advocate liberation, achieve liberation, and worshipfully acknowledge and rely on the God of liberation, who wants to liberate spiritually and physically. Proof of Christian faith is not in verses and creeds and dotted lines. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something else, be it a bestseller or the status quo. The quote-unquote proof of our personal and congregational relationships with Jesus will be in our inhalations and exhalations, our rising and our falling, and how we navigate our privileges and our oppressions in ways that serve as guideposts to this hitching post. We are sent to manifest particular transformations, beloved. We are sent to seek and embody justice, kindness, mercy, humility, stewardship, forgiveness, and peacemaking. This is how we make transformational love real, and in so doing, hitch the future of people's hope and the world's healing to the way of Jesus, whether they choose to claim him for themselves or not.
Scriptural exegesis could only take us so far in realizing more specifically how we are sent today to congregate and be part of God's liberation among oppressive systems and oppressed people. We have our present lived realities and our lives and choices to make in them. Since the biblical account of Jesus' physical time on earth came to a close, humans throughout history have sometimes wrestled to get this embodied commission right within and without the church, and often gone in horrifically wrong directions with devastating consequences. We get it wrong by horribly inverting and misappropriating the focus of God's concern and love. We send ourselves where we want to go, not where God makes it very clear she wants us to go. We say the message of God's goodness belongs in the hands of the powerful and those who would seek power. White supremacy and all its systemic and interrelational manifestations, it should go without saying, is a lie that profanes God's purposes for who we are meant to be for each other. Profanes I am. The world as it is embodies us in different ways in different places that have weight in addition to what we might hope Jesus' goodness embodies in us. Historical human decisions and damage misallocate power and privilege unequally based on arbitrary markers of skin color, gender, orientation, geography, and nationality. We inherit these constructs and those of us, like myself, born into privilege by any or all of those markers must be liberated by forces outside ourselves to be able to fully embody what is clear on the scriptural page, though we read it with our own two eyes. God's sending always comes to and for those at the margins of and exiled from powerful constructs or under their oppression. Moses, Isaiah, and Jesus exemplify this pattern scripturally. Theologically, I believe that true liberation for the earth and her people that can fully manifest the markers of good godness, godly goodness, must come from those oppressed and or at the margins. This is where God's heart and urgent concern more prominently reside, and it's on everyone to hear and respond to the groan of the oppressed that reveals shalom is not yet made real. I believe our white supremacist power-hungry destructive and selfish tendencies leave us no other choice, that though those born into automatic privilege might profess to know what God sends us to do, God's purposes will only be fulfilled via listening to and opening space for the needs of those most hungry for goodness. As Father Gustavo Gutierrez puts it, if I define my neighbor as the one I must go out to look for on the highways and the byways and the factories and slums, on the farms and in the mines, then my world changes. But the oppressed person does not exist as an inescapable fact of destiny. His or her or their existence is not politically neutral and it is not ethically innocent. The oppressed are a byproduct of the system in which we live and for which we are responsible. They are marginalized by our social and cultural world. They are oppressed and exploited, robbed of the fruit of their labor and despoiled of their humanity. Hence, the oppression of people of color, women, queer folks, and more is not a call to generous relief action, but a demand that we go and build a different social order. End quote.
with a slight modification by me. I believe the truth of God's concerns and commission are most fully realized in liberationist theologies in an ongoing generous process. This is why we are gifted with the opening up of a generous ongoing conversation and praxis to engage with in those that have built specific liberation theologies with feminist, womanist, queer, black, and intersections of them and more burning the God bushes anew for where open and affirming welcome and love and sending need to most be taking place in history and modernity. They illumine how the hitching post of our faith is not static either, but a dynamic fulcrum of emancipation, transformation, and ongoing becoming for those who encounter it. From Monica Coleman and her process womanist treatise Making a Way Out of No Way, quote, God is the one who offers the possibilities to the world, urging us to choose the paths that lead to a vision of the common good. While the principles of God's vision do not change, the way it gets played out on earth depends on what is happening in the world. God takes in or incorporates events of the world into who God is. God then relates those events with God's vision for the common good, searching for the best of what has happened in order to offer those aspects back to us in our next instance of becoming. End quote. And to quote Gutierrez again, one of the godfathers of liberation theology, Christ is the truth, but a truth that sets us free. The liberation he gives is an integral one that embraces all dimensions of human existence and brings us to full communion with God and among ourselves. This liberation is therefore one that begins with history, which thus becomes a way to a fullness that lies beyond it." End quote. This is the liberating sending and conversation that we began with in the Exodus story, carried forward into the 21st century by a God who is still speaking through Jesus Christ, and the congregations who embody the call. This is the way, truth, and life we claim for embodying I am in embodied solidarity until white supremacy is ash. We say we are Easter people, whatever the season. White supremacy should trouble our hearts, as should the pre-existing racial disparities the COVID-19 pandemic is laying bare for all to see. Dwelling with Jesus, and our hearts won't be troubled with the clarity we have for dismantling these injustices. Dwell there. There are ways, even now in quarantine, we can speak up and act out in our local and social media contexts. We are sent. Listen to those black, brown, and indigenous waymakers, truth tellers, and life givers in your community. We are sent. You, we are waymakers, truth tellers, and life givers also. Can you say, I am? Amen.
The word is resistance is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge stands for showing up for racial justice. And this live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement you're hearing is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include resources at the end to support your actions. Let us know how they go by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Make sure you're subscribed to stay plugged in all year long with ongoing resources from The Word is Resistance. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Be sure to give this episode a like or rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, links, and copyright information. Special thanks to our sound editor this week, Max Pearl. I'll leave you with a modified Franciscan benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at white supremacy and all injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, racism, misogyny, queerphobia, war, xenophobia, COVID-19, and more so that you may reach your hand to comfort them and embody solidarity until their pain is turned into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Finally, Ahmad Arbery, say his name. He should be a living breathing, jogging body and soul today. And what if that video hadn't surfaced? Jesus Christ. Black Lives Matter isn't just a slogan, but a way of living with gospel specificity. No more bodies cut down. No more. Let us be waymakers, truth-tellers, and life-givers, beloved. Be the I am that you are. Together we will do what others claim cannot be done. Organizing equals having our skin in the game. Or better yet, the willingness to be organized. May it be so.